This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Now today we're going to wrap up a series that we began just a few weeks ago called Stronger Foundations. And realistically for you, I just want to make you aware that uh, this theme, we, we are not exhausting it. As a matter of fact, uh, you're going to see it come back in the new year. Uh, I'm excited about what that's going to mean for us. I believe God has a lot more in it for us. Um, but next week we're going to start a new series And next week, we're starting a series called Fight Back. I don't know if you're aware of this. Most of us do not live in this kind of an awareness, an awareness that lets us know that every day when we wake up, we are literally in a war. And that war has already been declared against you, whether you acknowledge it or not. And that war is trying to steal, kill, and destroy every good gift that God wants to give you, that God has purposed in his heart for you. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, and I love the way that the message paraphrases this in Ephesians chapter 6. Look at what it says. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over about the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Be prepared. Be prepared. The truth is that many of us are not prepared. And when those moments come that we stand under the weight of the attack of the enemy, we get caught off guard, don't we? In some ways, we might get a little upset, maybe lose our cool. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to fight back to fight back because here's the subtle but obvious truth. War has been declared against you. It has. War has been declared against you. The question is not, is it there? Do you believe in it? The real question is, will you fight back? So next week, I'm going to expose you. The Bible only shows us the plan of the enemy. I'm going to talk about that next week so that you can see the plan. And then each week, we're going to take a component of the plan that the enemy has laid to attack your life. We're going to take a component of that and begin to break it down and break it down and break it down so that we can help you win. We can help you win. Now, this series, Stronger Foundations, Okay, we've been talking about what it means to build a stronger foundation. For a structure, a foundation is what something is built on top of or into. It, it is paramount to the value of that structure. A good structure on a bad foundation is a bad structure. But for us in our lives... We need to understand what foundations are. 
Our foundations are, and this is what I talked about last week in manner of review, number one, the perspectives on which we stand. You don't have to look real far to understand that in the world that we live in right now, most people are defining their foundations by the way that they see the world. This is the way I see it. What someone sees determines where they stand. So over the past several years, many of us have taken opposite perspectives from others, especially in the arena of politics. And what we don't understand is that people normally stand where they see. Some of us go, I'm not real sure injustice is a big issue. But some of us have seen it with our own eyes. And because we've seen it, injustice is a big issue. We stand where we see. But the problem with just creating an exhaustive foundation based on our perspectives is that sometimes we see it wrong. Is there something in your past that you go, man, I feel like I had that figured out. But time and life showed me that I did not. I thought I understood, but it turns out that I was wrong. Perspectives make a bad foundation for that reason. That's why we need more than just a simple perspective on which to build our lives. Number two, our foundations are the principles by which we live. And for far too many of us, we actually build principles out of perspectives. Well, I've seen it. This is how the world works. But for a Christ follower, our principles are built on the word of God. They're built uniquely on the teaching of Jesus. I'm not crafting a life based on my own perspective. I'm literally embracing the perspective of Jesus, which I told you last week often humbles my perspective. Because the way Jesus tells me to see it often is not the way I choose to see it. We need principles. We all have foundational perspectives. We all have foundational principles. We need principles because they humble our perspectives. Principles not only form our foundations, but they inform how we build. If you've ever built a house, you know this to be true. There are principles when it comes to construction. You do this first, and then you do this, and then you do this. I, I remember we were... Uh, kind of renovating our downtown campus. And I went in and our general contractor and I were meeting and they just put up some drywall. I'm like, we're going to be moving in in a few weeks. He's like, whoa, Kevin, whoa. Oh, we got a lot more to do. Why well, he understood the principles. He understood that there's a progression. We've got to walk through this progression. There are things that must be done first. And if they're not done, it won't be built well. This is exactly what Jesus is working to show us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is classically called the Sermon on the Mount, one of the largest connected teachings of Jesus in the Bible. It occurs in Matthew, and then it's also shown again in the Gospel of Luke. 
And Jesus is teaching us his way. As a matter of fact, that term is so important to early Christians that there are several times in the scriptures that Jesus and what he invited people into becomes the way. That's just simply the way that they would talk. It was the way. Jesus showed us the way. And this is a remarkable teaching, and he's showing us something. As I was reflecting on that this week, I wrote this, that the way of Jesus is a subversive, counterintuitive invitation to life. Subversive. It upends other things that we try to build. It's counterintuitive because in many ways it flows the opposite direction. It flows away from our culture. And it's an invitation to life. I was thinking about this for us. You know, there are a lot of thoughts about life. That I'll be fully alive if I can go on this trip or go on this adventure or finally get that person to look at me. If I can have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or if my spouse would finally start acting right, if my kids would behave, if this would happen, if everybody would finally do everything that I think that they're supposed to do, I would feel fully alive. But I thought about this in regards to my life and I don't live in a vacuum. I live in the same world and I'm confronted with the same lies that you are. And I've thought that before, that I'll be alive if we get that house or this car or finally get to this achievement. But when I reflect on my life, the moments when I felt most alive were the moments when I was most connected to Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can get to God except by going through Jesus. Jesus said, I came that you might have life. And not just some boiled down version, but life to its fullest. Authentic life is only found in Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is working really hard to address people's perspectives, the way they see the world. And he's correcting that because when we build the wrong principle off the wrong perspective, we start to live and build a life on the wrong principle. And so in Matthew 5, he says this in verse 21. You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Jesus taking his people all the way back to Mount Sinai where Moses was delivered the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not murder. And the perspective had become, all right, if I murder, that means literally taking somebody's life. And Jesus is saying, you got it wrong. The principle is not just your behavior. The principle addresses your heart. If you hate somebody in your heart, you've already murdered them. It's the same thing. Jesus is confronting their perspective to create a new principle. Does this in Matthew 6, the next chapter. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rush destroys them. 
and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Jesus is coming in direct contact with a common cultural perspective that's still true today, that when I have money, the reason that I have financial resource is I have done something to deserve it, I have earned it, and so it needs to fall in line with my purposes. It's my money, and I will use it to get my stuff. And Jesus says, no. It's not your money. As a matter of fact, it's God's money. Well, I mean, I went to work. You went to work using the talents that God gave you into an opportunity that God gave you. And I know that that's true because there are many of us that have lost a job and we started what? Praying. God, give me a job. And all of a sudden, it's my money when God gave me the job and the skills and the talents. No, it's God's money. It's God's money. And Jesus is saying, listen, when you have that perspective, you keep investing into a world that will leave you dissatisfied. And you know that to be true. Because sometime you thought, if I can just get that new phone, those new clothes, that new house, if I can just get that, and it's all failed you. Jesus says, no, invest in eternity. Get invested in eternity. And what will happen is the desires of your heart will begin to shift. Sometimes the things we worry about and fear give up for other people the conditions of our hearts because we are very worried about the things of this life. Jesus is saying, no, I don't, don't be invested in, in just, there, there's, there's an eternity that's, far beyond this and the, the stuff that you invest in for eternity, it's, it's not going to fade or wrinkle or blemish. It's going to last forever. And as he ends this teaching, he says this. This is a story that he tells and I'm going to read it in its entirety at the end of Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, the house built on the sand, and it fell with a great crash. I was thinking about this story, and I've often wondered, Jesus is telling a, a, a parable about building our lives. We all do the work of building a life but not every life lasts. And he draws the distinction that what makes a life last is its foundation, what it's built on. But he uses the metaphor of a, of a house that comes crashing down. Why would Jesus use that? And I heard a story that I believe for me shed light into it. It's a story of something that happened the evening of July 17th 
in 1981 in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. It's the Hyatt Regency Hotel. It had just been completed under a year earlier. It's brand new. It's massive. Looked beautiful against the skyline of Kansas City. You walked into the, the atrium of the hotel. It was open for floors going up. There were skywalks that came around. They, they looked like they were floating. The architecture was beautiful. The spot in the city was unmatched. And every Friday night, they hosted a dance. They were actually popular all across the United States. They were called tea dances. You'd get dressed up and you'd go out with your friends and you'd have some hors d'oeuvres and that night, there were over 1,600 people gathered in the lobby of the Hyatt Regency in Kansas City, Missouri. And something happened that night that for every person in that room changed the trajectory of their lives. And it's told really well by a local news station who reported on it not too long ago. I want to watch a clip from their report. Look at this with me. I can hear it in my head right now, 40 years later. All of a sudden, you heard this noise. Pop! Pop! The noise was just incredible, and the building shook. It sounded like a big tree limb cracking. I just remember hearing the crack. Concrete and steel doesn't, doesn't break quietly. The second floor walkway begins to sag, and then it begins to split. Looking at each other, and that's all I remember. From the very top, here it came. And they land on top of hundreds of people. And then, black. seconds right after that was perhaps the most odd portion of the whole event. Oh, total silence and eerie. You didn't hear a scream. You didn't hear a thing for three, four, maybe even five seconds. And then the chaos started. NBC 9 photojournalist Dave Forstate started rolling and running. There's a lot of adrenaline that was going through my body at that time. Two skywalks had collapsed onto the lobby of Kansas City's Hyatt Regency Hotel. Busboys and dancers donning numbers for a swing dance contest spun into action to help. Concrete, steel, and glass, now a 72-ton tomb. <clears throat> In it. immediately smelled like death. I don't know how else to put it. Just, you knew. There'd be, there was an odor. Musician Rich Coble was just feet from the wreckage that now encased dozens of people like Mark Williams. I knew there were people next to me that were killed instantly. And I don't want to go into how I knew that, but I knew. The minute it came down and hit us, I knew there were people crushed. 
The Hyatt Regency collapse was the largest structural failure in United States history until the Twin Towers fell on September 11th. Instantly, 72 tons of concrete and steel fell from hundreds of feet onto hundreds of people. Almost instantly, over 100 people were killed. Over 200 people, in addition to that, were critically injured. Why does Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, tell a parable? Why does he use the imagery of a structure that collapsed? I believe it's really simple. And it's because there's always collateral damage in a collapse. I need you to hear this clearly. If your life comes crashing down, it will not simply affect you. It will affect all the people around you. Dads, if your life comes crashing down, it's going to come crashing down on top of your kids, on top of your wife, moms. If your life collapses, it's not just you. It collapses on top of the weight of your kids and their hearts. And we know this to be true because we've seen this happen, maybe in your own life and in the lives of others. Jesus makes it explicitly clear the difference between a life that stands and one that collapses is its foundation. It's what it's built on top of. Everybody's going to face storms. Everybody's going to build a life, but not every life is going to last. And the difference will be its foundation. If we're going to build a life that lasts, we need a stronger foundation. Now, please hear me. This is not for your friend that's not in the room today. This is not for your spouse, and you're like, God, I hope they're listening. This is for you. In eternity, God destined for you to be in this room, to hear this today, and I believe that what I'm going to talk about over the next few minutes, while it might challenge your ego, it might push against your pride, it will also prepare you to build a life that lasts. Three simple observations on this. Number one, you cannot live in the promises of God if you're living your own way. You cannot live in the promises of God when you're living your own way. Jesus says, the one who built a foundation on the rock, this is what they did. They heard his teaching and then they put it into practice. The other one, the foundation of sand, 
They heard his teaching, but they ignored it. You cannot live in the promises of God. In this parable, Jesus is saying, here, here's the promise. Your life will last if it's built on the right foundation. Those promises in the Bible are not for everybody. And this is tough for us to accept because we want to believe everybody's God's child. And the truth is that they're not. There's some of us that overtly are pushing against the desires of God in this world. The Bible would describe us not as children of God, but as children of wrath. Not every promise is for everybody. Here's an example. God promises that everything that we're going to do in life, everything we're going to face in life, everything we go through in life will turn out good. Will turn out good in the end. And that comes from Romans 8, verse 28. And this is what it says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you notice that there are two conditions in this verse, just simple, okay? This is real. I just want to make it real plain. There are two conditions in this verse for that promise to be good for you. And the first one is that we love God. We love God. I've got to love God. And Jesus would say, you got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is all that I am. I love God. And then number two, I've been called into the purposes of God. God has a purpose for my life. I'm not trying to neglect it. I'm literally, I hear the calling and I step into it with obedience. I love God and I've received a call into the purposes of God. Then God promises, I will take everything that you face and I will turn it into something that is good. But the problem with this is that we don't understand what Jesus is saying in this moment through his word. Because culturally, we don't understand love. Love for us culturally is affection. Which is why we will say things like, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little bit. Oh, I love Jesus, but I got to have me a little wine every night. I love Jesus, but I'm, what's the fill in the blank? Oh, I love Jesus, but I ain't forgiven them. I love Jesus, but I ain't given. I love Jesus, but I ain't, you ain't ever catch me serving. Jesus has already predefined love. You don't get to negotiate what it means to love him. In John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. He didn't say anything about your affection. He talked about obedience. If you love me, keep my commands. And you can argue all day, well, I love God, but I'm not. And you want to know what? Your I'm not is showing the rest of us and showing God that you don't love him. Jesus has already predefined what it means. He's already said, if you're going to love me, this is what it looks like to love me. It's obedience. Keep my commands. If you're consistently trying to negotiate your, 
your way through with Jesus. What you're doing is rejecting him. If you're living your own way, you're rejecting, consciously rejecting Jesus. If you're saying, no, God, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to give. How are you going to live in the promises of God if you're not willing to live the way that Jesus has instructed you to live? You can't live in the promises if you're living your own way, which is why, number two, our lives must be built on disciplined obedience. On disciplined obedience. And some of us love discipline. We love routine and we, we love learning to, to get in this rhythm and, and to do this. And I, I, we, we lo- but the, here's the thing. This is not just discipline. This is being disciplined to obey the commands of Jesus Christ. To live the way that he has invited us to live. Why? Because Jesus makes it clear. That if I hear his commands and dismiss them and try to do life my own way, the only logical outworking of that is my life will come collapsing down on top of me and everybody I love. And the tough truth for many of us is we like to try obedience. I, I tried to forgive them. I tried. Oh, I, try, I tried serving. I tried it for a little while. Oh, I, I tried giving a couple times. Obedience isn't something you try. It's something you sell out to. It's something you give your whole life, your whole heart, all your energy to do. Like, listen, you're not going to forgive somebody the first time you utter the words, I forgive you. It's a heart issue. If you're wounded, it's going to be thousands and thousands of times of wrestling through. I forgive them, God. I don't feel like it. I forgive them again. I know that God forgive me for picking up the burden. It's not something you try. It's something you sell out to doing. And you know this already. Because there's not a wife in this room that would feel comfortable if her husband came home and said, baby, I've been trying to be faithful to you. What? Did you say trying? Did you say trying to be faithful? What do you mean trying to be faithful to me? What are you saying? You expect your husband to sell out to faithfulness. When I don't feel like it, when I'm not ready for it, when I'm being tempted, what? I'm sold out to it. That's exactly what God expects from you. For you to be sold out to obedience, disciplined to doing what he's called you to do. Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and what? puts them into practice, builds a life on a rock that cannot be shaken. You can't do something once and call it obedience. It must become a discipline. It must become a discipline. What did Jesus say? We looked at this, John 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, 
keep my commandments. In the Greek, the original text, the word that Jesus used for keep is the Greek word tereo. It would have described what a nurse does at the bedside of a dying patient where they're looking at them, keeping watch over them. They need this. Let's get them this. All right, they need this. Um, we're going to guard, guard against what's happening. This is what we're supposed to do to the decrees and demands of God. We're supposed to keep watch over them in our lives. Not some you try on, some you sell out to. So number three, to grow a stronger foundation, we cannot neglect the small things. I hope over the next few minutes, this becomes real clear to you. Because there are lives that potentially will collapse. And it's not what we would label a big thing. It's actually small. We think, well, well I, know, I know I'm doing this, but, but this seems like such a small thing. Look, God, look at this thing. And I know I'm supposed to, it just seems, it's not, that's not a big deal. Here's the big deal. God, look at this. I know this is, life isn't built on what you know. It's built on what you do with what you know. And some of us are dismissing things. I know I'm supposed to forgive. I know. But that doesn't seem like a big thing. Oh, I know I'm supposed to serve. And you know, just, it just didn't feel like, it didn't feel like that was a, a big deal, you know? I, I know I'm supposed to give, but, I, but I'm not sure that that makes a big difference. Life is not built on what you know. It's built on what you do with what you know. The person who built a life that came crashing down heard the teachings of Jesus. The one who built on the right foundation, who had a life that lasted, responded in obedience to the teachings of Jesus. Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story. We call it the parable of the talents. Master's leaving. He's got great wealth to manage his estate while he's gone. He takes a large sum, puts it in the hands of a very capable manager, a little bit less in another one, and then a small amount in another servant. They're all tasked with take it, manage this money. When he comes back, if you know the story, the one who had one talent, all right, which was actually a considerable amount of money, that comes back and I didn't lose it. And he calls it, you're wicked and lazy. Get out of here, take what he had, give it to the one who has the most. Why? Because he didn't do anything with it. He did nothing with it. The other two, three talent, five talents, they doubled what had been entrusted to them. And both times the master says something that's really important. He says this, well done, good and faithful servant. I love that at the end of his life, Billy Graham said over and over again, that's what I'm, I'm living to hear that to hear the Lord look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come share in your master's happiness. You, you've been faithful with the small things. Now I'm, I've got something that's next for you. You didn't neglect the small things. I've got some bigger things coming. If you're too big for small things, you're too small for the next thing. And some of us look at things in our lives and go, that's beneath me. I'm not going to do that. I'm better than that. 
Oh, I got life figured out. I know what I'm supposed to do. If you're too big for small things, you're too small for the next thing. Because it's in the small things that we demonstrate our faithfulness to a God who provided that opportunity to us. Small things and our faithfulness in them lead to the next things in life. And what happens is faithfulness unlocks the favor of God. You see that in that story. Jesus, come and you've been faithful with small things. Come and share in your master's happiness. You know, I was reminded as I studied the, the collapse of the Hyatt Regency that sometimes we, we like to think of big errors that lead to collapse, but, but sometimes it's not big. Sometimes it's subtle, convenient, and small. And that's what happened there. Watch this explanation of what happened in that building that day. Three 120-foot skywalks connected the north and south ends of the lobby, made of concrete, steel, and glass, each weighing 36 tons, and designed to look like they were floating. A fourth-floor skywalk was 30 feet above the second-floor skywalk on the lobby's west side. A third-floor skywalk hung to the east. Their views? Irresistible during crowded tea dances. Engineering firm Gillum Calaco originally designed the skywalks to be held up with one continuous rod strung through both floors. But it was going to be difficult to make, so subcontractors proposed hanging the second floor skywalk from the fourth floor using a second set of rods, a change that would double the amount of weight on the upper walkway connection. There were six hanger rods on each skywalk hung through sets of C-shaped channels welded together to create a box beam. On the bottom of each, a small nut and washer. Together, these pieces of metal were supporting 72 tons of weight between the second and fourth four skywalks. It was a small feature, but an error with immense consequences. Construction was happening in 1980. The design demanded a singular metal rod that suspended the walks. But they were unable to find a company that could construct those without consulting engineers, people on site, the desire to meet a deadline and to not get behind in construction made the decision to change the design. It seems like a small thing. but they had no idea what they were doing. Because of that simple, convenient decision, hundreds of people's lives would be lost and hundreds more would have their life forever altered. God has a design for your life. And he's made it abundantly clear through the teachings of Jesus Christ and God's word. You can try to negotiate all you want to with the principles by which we are called to live. But all you'll end up doing is building a life that when the storm hits, it collapses. What's the small thing you've neglected in building your foundation? This is not for the person sitting next to you. This is for you. 
What's the small thing in your life right now? Maybe for you, it's the reading of God's word. I, I read that a, a decade ago. I, I know it. Oh, yeah? It's not an academic textbook. It's living and alive, written by the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something new in it every day for you. The Bible calls it the bread of life. It's its testimony of what it is to us. And we pray that prayer, God, give me this day my daily bread, but yet we neglect the word of God. It's the small thing. It's a big thing, but it seems like a small thing that we've neglected reading God's word. Maybe for you, it's surrendering control. You find yourself getting angry and mad because the people around you are not doing the things that you think they should be doing. And if everybody would just finally get to a point where they would listen to you and do what you're telling them to do, the world would be fine. And the truth is that the world would only be fine for you because you're controlling. And what you need to do is surrender control. Give it up, let God be in control. Control the things you should, which is often our attitude, the way we act, and release the rest of it to God. Seems like a small thing. But if you don't do that, you can wreck relationships in your family. What about this one? Trusting God. Some of us hit a, a snag in life, and all of a sudden we're going to our best friend, our mama, we're going to the blogs, we're going to the podcast, we're trying to find an answer. We don't ever go to God. The reason is we don't trust God. God, I don't need you to tell me because I'm not going to do what you tell me to do anyway. All I do, I just want somebody to actually tell me to do what I want to do and then I'll feel better about disobeying you. Can seem like a small thing. Yeah, I want to harbor that grudge. But in the end, it's disobeying the heart of God. Small thing can lead to a life that collapses. What small thing? Have you been neglecting and building your foundation? Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.